I was studying Gideon. That's what we're talking about today. Let me make sure I know how to, okay, I know how to use the clicker. This is my first time using the clicker up here, so bear with me. If something doesn't come on, just pretend it's up there so that I feel better about it. And then you can tell me afterwards how poorly I did. But I've been studying Gideon. Um, actually, the last message that I gave in this series in November, I had basically written half of this sermon, and then God really changed directions, and I ended up talking about David and Bathsheba. So that was really different than Gideon. And um, when Pastor Jacob asked me to speak again this Sunday, I kind of went back and I was like, God, do you want me to finish Gideon? Do you want me to do something different? Like, I don't want to do the other half, and then you change it on me again. But um, I've been spending the last month just kind of trying to weed through this story, and it's only three chapters, really, the story of Gideon. Um, but he's known as one of the great heroes in the Old Testament. He's one of the few um, mentioned in Hebrews 11, as we call it, the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame for Faith. And he's mentioned in that, which is really what kind of drew me to go, I want to study more. Like, why would the writer of Hebrews decide that Gideon was worth looking at? Because I think of Gideon, and I was kind of taught as a kid that he was a coward that didn't trust God, and then eventually he screwed up and led the entire nation of Israel astray. And I'm going, so there has to be something good to come out of his story, right, for him to be used as an example in Hebrews 11. So I really dug in and, and studied and read, and, and this, this message has changed a lot over the last couple months as I just kept trying to, to get this picture of Gideon's life as a whole. And there's so many little details that we're not going to be able to get into today because we are doing a Cliff Notes version. So this is a very big picture look at the story of Gideon, and there's tons of little things I'm going to mention along the way. Um, but what we're going to try to do is work through these three chapters, and then I'm a very visual learner, so I have a nice graph that I created at the end. It took me like 45 minutes to create it in Keynote, so don't make fun of how bad it is. Um, but I'm hoping it will help, because the, the picture that I kept getting in my mind is the story of Gideon is very much an arc. And, and like a rainbow shape, not like Noah's Ark, but A-R-C Ark. And that's kind of the graph that I come to at the end is Gideon's life, like so many of ours, has ups, it has downs, and I, I want to see it as a full picture and see what we can take away from it and see how we can apply it to our lives, because that's what this series is about. We're trying to see what happened, what we can learn from it, and what it tells us about Jesus. And so those are the three things we're going to be looking at today. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started. God, thank you that you're good, you're faithful. Father, please give us eyes to see this story of Gideon the way that you would want us to see it. Help us to um, really see the change and, and to identify with different parts and be okay with identifying with the bad parts and be okay with identifying in the good parts. But God, that we would be changed and transformed today through the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would move and that you would speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it all starts in Judges chapter 6. So I'm going to read kind of these verses, 1 through 6, give the background as why was Gideon needed. We know the book of Judges is all about God send, sending people to Israel to save them from other nations that were oppressing them. So why does Gideon even have to become a judge? Why does Gideon even become a hero? So we look at Judges chapter 6. Israel did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Surprise. 
So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. So the Midianites were so cruel and so evil that Israel literally went into hiding at all times. They could no longer live in normal homes. They were living in caves and hiding on mountains to try to stay away from them. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders, or marauders, I'm not really sure how to say it, from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel. They would camp in the land and they would destroy crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, all the goats, all the cattle, and all the donkeys. These enemy hordes, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So the Israelites were hiding in caves, then they're planting their crops, trying, and as soon as the harvest came, the Midianites would just come and decimate the entire land. And then this is how verse 6 ends this passage. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then Israel cried out to the Lord for help. That's just a little piece. It took seven years of starvation for them to finally go, you know what, maybe we should ask God for help. That's just a whole another sermon in itself. As we walk through this story, I'm just going to try to give little nuggets of just things that I learned from this part of Gideon's life, and then at the end, we're going to look at the whole of his life and really see what's the big takeaway, because when you put all the little pieces together, it kind of just looks like a mess. Um, But spoiler alert, that's kind of what our lives look like a lot. There's a lot of good, there's a lot of bad, and somehow we ask God to make sense of it all and to use us in spite of it. So this is what's going on in Israel, right? So they're reduced to starvation. Finally, Israel calls out to God. God sends a prophet, not Gideon, but someone to speak for him and says, I am the God that brought you out of Egypt. You were not faithful to me, which is why this is happening. I'm going to rescue you. So this is where we pick up with the story of Gideon. And these few verses tell us everything we need to know about Gideon to start. So we know that Israel is hiding, that as soon as their crops are ready, the Midianites are taking them. And so we get to verse 11. This is where Gideon comes on the stage. It says then, this thing is sensitive. It's hard. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah. Looks like Oprah to me, but which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezar. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. So Gideon is threshing wheat to try to harvest some of these crops, but he's doing it in a big pit that they would normally use to press grapes for wine. He's not doing it on a threshing floor, because normally when you want to I, I'm a real expert in, um, you know, threshing wheat. So normally you would do it on an open threshing floor because you want the wind to take the chaff away while the grain stays. But he's in the middle, underground basically, in a pit doing it. So it had to be way harder to do. But he was afraid the food would get taken and that he would be killed. So he's hiding. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. So this is the first thing. The first thing we see about Gideon is that he's hiding, 
And then the angel of the Lord says, you are a mighty hero. The Lord is with you. Now Gideon disagrees with the angel. The first thing he goes, I don't know what you're talking about because I'm the least in my family, which is the least in the tribe of Manasseh, and I'm, I'm nobody. Why would you call me a mighty hero? And so he has this disagreement with the angel. He says, your premise is all wrong. I'm not a mighty hero. I'm just Gideon. And the angel goes, well, the Lord has chosen you. You're going to save Israel. And Gideon kind of gets an attitude. He goes, how am I supposed to believe that? I've heard the stories of what God did. I've heard that he saved us from Egypt and brought us out of slavery, but I've never seen that in my lifetime. So how am I supposed to believe that God's going to do that now? So he says, you know what? In order to prove that you're really from God, that you're really telling me the truth, I want you to stay here. I'm going to go prepare a sacrifice. I'm going to bring it, and I'm going to make this sacrifice in front of you. And if God accepts my sacrifice then I'll believe that you're telling me the truth. So he goes, he gets all the sacrificial stuff. He comes back, the guy waited for him, the angel of the Lord. So Gideon sets it all up on the altar that he kind of created, and the angel of the Lord touches it with a stick, with a staff, and fire comes up from the altar and consumes it. And at this point, Gideon realizes he probably overstepped his boundaries talking to this guy because the angel disappears and he goes, oh great, I've seen the Lord, now I'm going to die. And God tells him, you're not going to die. I will be with you. You need to go and save Israel. Now this is the little nugget that I get from this is Gideon's hiding, he's a coward, he doesn't believe that God can actually do what he's heard God actually is going to do. He doesn't believe that God is going to use him because he doesn't believe and his own ability, but the angel spoke to who Gideon was created to be, right? He said, mighty hero. That's how he addressed him. Now, we know for a fact that Gideon was not a mighty hero at that point, and I don't think anyone would argue that. I don't think Gideon would argue. I don't even think the angel of the Lord would argue that at that moment, he was not mighty, nor was he a hero, but the angel knew what God had created him to do. The angel knew what his calling was, the angel knew what his purpose was, and so he spoke to that. He spoke to who Gideon was created to be, not who Gideon knew himself to be. God calls us based on what he created us to do, and he will create in us the person that we were meant to be if we will be faithful and we will obey step by step. And that's what we see next in the story of Gideon. So God makes the first attempt to give Gideon an opportunity to have faith, to trust him, and to obey. So God goes, hey, you know on your dad's property, there's an altar to Baal and a pole of Asherah used for worshiping idols. I want you to go and I want you to tear it down and then make a sacrifice to me. So verse 27, this is what Gideon does. Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded, but he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. So we look at this in the first half, we're like, oh, that's awesome. Gideon went and he did what God told him to do. And then there's the but, and it's, but he did it at night because he was afraid, right? And this is where we get that whole rhetoric in our heads when we're growing up in kids' church, not in our kids' church, because we 
we're on top of things. But when I was taught is that Gideon was a coward, right? And this is, I, I see how we come to that conclusion. And it is kind of true. I mean, he was scared, but I mean, the whole town was out to get him, and he knew he would be killed for doing this, yet he obeyed God. And as I was reading this, I thought, man, why couldn't he just do it in the middle of the day? Why wasn't he more brave? He was supposed to be a mighty hero. Why didn't he go out and do it right in the middle of while they were making sacrifices to the idol, right? Just come in with the bull and just run through everything and like destroy the whole place, right? Because he was scared, but he still obeyed God. God didn't tell him when he had to do it. God didn't tell him, you need to make sure everyone sees you do it. He just said, do this. And the comforting thing for me is that God met Gideon where he was. And he asked him to do something. And it was still credited to him as obedience, even though there was still fear. Even though he was still unsure. Even though he goes, I don't really want to get caught doing this, but God told me to do it, so I'm going to do it. That even in the face of fear, Gideon obeyed. And God was pleased with that. Sometimes doing the right thing, doing what we believe God's asking us to do is scary. We don't want to do it. And we think, oh man, if I'm not doing it as bold or as courageous, if I'm not, you know, using some kind of pamphlet to lead someone to Christ, then I'm not doing it right. But if you're being obedient, God's okay with meeting you where you're at, with working within your fears, working at the level of faith that you have to be obedient to him. And that's what we see in Gideon, is God didn't care so much how he obeyed him, or even how, how perfectly or how great of an example he set. It was simply the act of obedience that God valued. So we get here, Gideon does the first thing. The town comes out, they go, Joash, give us your son, we're going to kill him. Luckily, Joash, his father, who allowed these altars to be on his property, so he's messed up to begin with, and he goes, why would we need to defend Baal? If he's a real god, he'll defend himself. So let's not kill Gideon, let's let Baal defend himself. And as you can guess, Baal could not defend himself because he was a false god and couldn't do anything about it. But Joash had saved his son's life. So now Gideon goes on with his life. He's probably still threshing wheat in the wine press. He didn't get this entire huge, you know, move of God, and now he's like bashing heads in and taking on Midianites by himself. This isn't the story of Samson. He doesn't grab a donkey's jawbone and just start killing people, right? This is, this is still Gideon. So we look at verse 34. This is when the Midianites are coming to invade now, because as we know, Gideon's starting to thresh wheat, which means the, the harvest is here which means the Midianites are coming from the east to destroy everything. Then the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. It means, like, the the words there means it literally came on him like like clothing. So it, it, it covered him, it consumed him. He blew a ram's horn as a call to arms, which is a shofar, if you're wondering. I've used a shofar once. My father has one. It was interesting. A little stinky, though. It's all side notes. No one seems to care except me. And the men of the clan of Abiezar came to him. So at this point, this is the first time when we see Gideon truly operating in his calling, right? The Spirit of God comes upon him, 
and he blows the ram's horn. He, he makes the call to arms. And we find out that 32,000 men answered the call. So he's becoming that mighty hero. The spirit of the Lord is the one that empowered him to do what he was created to do, to fulfill the calling that was put on his life by God. And he begins to become that person. So we can see this arc beginning to trend up, right? He's getting to the point where he's supposed to be. And then the fleece. This is the most famous part of Gideon's story. So he has all the men. As soon as he calls them, he starts freaking out again. He's like, okay, 32,000 men just came to me. Also, I've never fought anybody in my life. Um, I've never even threshed wheat out in the open. So obviously, he's probably not skilled with a sword. And he's, he starts freaking out. He goes, God, if this is really you, I'm going to put a fleece out, a wool fleece, out on the grass. Please, when you send the dew in the morning, make it to where only the fleece has dew and make the rest of the ground dry. So God does it, and Gideon wrings out the wool, and it has tons of dew in it. And then Gideon goes, please don't be mad, but now can you do the opposite? Can you, can you leave the fleece dry, which wool is super absorbent, so the, the possibility of that is very, very low, and make the rest of the ground wet? And God does that. And I was always taught I mean, we know, we know the Bible says, do not test the Lord your God. Jesus quotes that when Satan is tempting him. And we know that the only thing God says is the only thing that we should test him on is faithfulness and giving, right? So we know that God says, it, it said, the Bible says, don't test the Lord your God. And if you are going to test him, only test that he'll be faithful. If you give to God what is his, he will be faithful to take care of you. Those are the only two, that's the only thing you're supposed to test God on. And I was always taught, that this was Gideon testing God, going, I'm not doing it unless you perform this miracle. And the more I read it, and the more I read what people smarter than me thought about it, and the more I prayed about it and read in the context of his whole story, yes, it was fear, but it wasn't a test in the way that we think it was a test. And what I mean by that is, Gideon is terrified. He has 32,000 men about to follow him into battle against an army, remember, that the camels were like the grain of, grains of sand, which means you couldn't even count them. They came like swarms of locusts. They're warriors. They've been killing and pillaging the people of Israel for seven years. This dude's never, ever been in a fight, and now he's in charge of 32,000 people. And mind you, he's never seen God do a miracle in his lifetime. So at this point, he starts freaking out, and he starts going, if I'm really supposed to do this, if this is real, I need to know that you're going to be with me. Because that was the promise the angel made. He said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. And he showed that the Lord was with him through protecting him when he obeyed him to destroy the altar. The spirit of the Lord came on him when he called all the men to him, when he called the army. But at this point, Gideon's freaking out and going, I have to lead 32,000 men in battle, and I don't even know if I've really heard from God. Because I don't, I don't really know what that means. I don't, I, it's never happened to anyone I know. God's never spoken to anybody in my family. He's like, how do I know I'm not just like super dehydrated and like losing my mind? 
And this is what he does. He goes to God. He goes, please just prove that you're going to be with me. Please prove I'm not alone. Please prove I'm not crazy. And I think that that is where God meets us where we are. Just like God met him in his obedience. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't exemplary, but it was obedient. And right now, Gideon's not going, God, I don't believe that you're going to be with me. He's going, God, please just make me believe that you're going to be with me. Help my doubt. I don't want to doubt anymore. Help my doubt. Help me to really trust that this is you, to know that I'm not crazy. And God meets him there. Then the next step, we get to chapter 7. 32,000 men come. Gideon's getting ready to go to war. And then this is what God says. I laugh because it's like he does this amazing miracle to prove he's with them. And he's like, great, I got 32,000 men. We can do this. And God goes, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they have saved themselves by their own strength, which still 32,000 against like a million is still pretty bad odds. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. So the, the first layer of like trimming down the army by two-thirds is like, hey, if you're like scared, you can go. And 22,000 people leave. So Gideon's not alone in being a little afraid. Even 32,000 was, was not enough people to make them feel like they could accomplish anything. But God wants to make sure that the entire mess that got Israel into this place is that they stop trusting him. So he's making sure that that doesn't happen again. He's going, I want to make sure that you know that in your lifetime, I care about the people right now enough to do a miracle like I did in Egypt. So, he's down to 10,000. It's a little more manageable, but also terrible, terrible odds. Verses 6 and 7. There's just a couple verses later, God says this. Oh, wait, no. I didn't have that on there. So this is what happens. So God tells him, you still have too many people. 10,000 is too many. So go down to the spring, like a little creek, river, spring, I don't really know, and have the men take a drink from the spring, and I will tell you how to divide them at that point. Now we're on verse 6. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands, which means they like kind of knelt down, scooped up some water, drank it. Some versions say like lapped it up like a dog, which I always thought was interesting that he chose people that did that, but... All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So 300 dudes, you know, reach down, cup up some water, get a drink. A lot of commentators, a lot of scholars believe that these were the men that were the most alert. They were the ones who weren't willing to get down on the ground and put their face in the stream and not be alert, put their equipment down, but they simply, as they were going, they leaned over, they kept their wits about them. I don't think it really matters. I think if it would have been flipped, I think God would have been like, all right, the 300 who did that. I think, I think it was more about thinning the herd than it was about how they drank, which people would disagree with me, but um, that's what I think, because I think 
God's whole purpose in this is showing that despite all odds, if we're obedient and we trust him, he will come through. So, now they have 300 men against the million. We're just saying million because it's a big number that none of us can really comprehend. Who knows how many it really was. 300 against a million. And Gideon's like, okay, here we go. And this is a moment that I think is huge. This is a shift in the entire story of Gideon. Up to this point, Gideon's gone, well, let me make a sacrifice and make sure it's real. Well, let, let me do the fleece and prove that you're with me. Let, let me ask you to give me a sign so that I know you're with me. But at this point, God meets Gideon where he is at in order to take him where he's created to be. And I think that's huge for us. God's willing to meet you where you're at in your fear, in your doubt, in your confusion, in whether you feel worthy or enough. And he, he's going to meet you there so that he can take you where he created you to be, where he wants you to be. He doesn't want to leave you where you're at. So God now reaches out to Gideon and says, Gideon never said he was scared. He didn't ask for another sign. Gideon's trying to figure out how to fight a million people with 300 when he's never been to battle. And God goes, you know what? I'm going to do just one more thing so that you know that I'm with you. He goes, take your servant, go down to the Midianite camp after dark, and I want you to listen when you hear men talking in their tent. And it says that they go down, the camels are as many as the grains of sand, they, the tents, everything is so, so much. And they go down to this tent, and they hear this guy tell this dream, which actually has a lot of meaning in it, and we're not going to get into it, but basically this loaf of bread rolls down the hill and wipes out all the tents of the Midianites. That's the dream. And in verse 14, the Midianites' friend says this, your dream can only mean one thing. You ate something bad. No, God gives him an interpretation. He said, God has given Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. So at this point, not only does God tell Gideon he's going to be with him, but he hears from the mouth of the Midianites that he knows that God has given Gideon victory over the Midianites. Mentally, he's already won the battle because God has moved and spoken to the enemy that they're already going to lose. So this is kind of the apex of, of Gideon and right after that, so that was verse 14, right? Verse 15 says this, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed and worshiped before the Lord. Then he returned to the Israelite camp and shouted, get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. So at this point, this is where I see Gideon at the very peak of his obedience to God, is he goes, he has the understanding that God is with them. He has the faith to say what God said is going to happen, and he starts taking charge. He becomes who he was created to be. He begins to step in to his destiny and into his story. He's becoming the mighty hero that the angel spoke about a chapter and a half ago. That, that couldn't have been less true. And now he's stepping into that. And I love this part, is that God doesn't tell Gideon what to do. 
God was with him. He said, I will be with you. You will have victory, but I've created you to be the mighty hero. You've walked this walk with me. You've taken these steps of obedience, and now use the wisdom that I've given you, use the giftings that I've given you, and go beat Midian. He never tells him a battle plan. We know in Joshua, he gets the battle plan to walk around a city seven times. We're waiting for Gideon to get some kind of crazy way they're going to do it. But God goes, no, you'll figure it out. Because at that moment, when Gideon said this, and he had the faith to believe that God was going to do what God said he was going to do, and that he was who God said he was, God knew he could trust him. So, Gideon says, all right, we're going to break up into three groups of 100 men. And everyone's going to have a clay jar with a torch in it, and everyone's going to have a trumpet. We're going to go on three sides of this valley that all the Midianites are in. We're going to stand up on the hill. And on my mark, do what I do. I should have put this verse up there, but Gideon says to them, he goes, follow me, do what I do. He takes the leadership role that God's been speaking to him ever since he found him hiding in a wine press. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to set the example. I'm going to go first. I'm going to be the one to take the risk. And everyone else can follow me and do what I do because I'm stepping into who God created me to be. So he says, we're going to break the jars. Then we're all going to have these torches. Then we're all going to scream for the Lord and for Gideon. And then we're going to blow trumpets. That's the battle plan. As you can tell, he's never led a battle before. (laughs) It's about as useful as Joshua's idea of walking around the city. But at this point, he's like, hey, this is what I came up with. We got a lot of torches. We got a lot of pots. So this is how we're going to do this. And honestly, I feel like Gideon's fear was like, but we're not going to go down there (laughs) until we see what God's going to do. That would have been my plan too. But like, let's stand and scream at him and then see what happens. And if things go well, then maybe we'll actually fight. Those clay shards would probably be sharp. But he does that. They break them, the torches light, and they do it. This is interesting. Another thing that God didn't tell them to do, he does it in the middle of the night as they're switching guards. Okay, so it's around midnight. They're in the middle of switching the watch. So this means dudes that have been asleep for two hours that are supposed to be awake are now waking up dudes that have been asleep. So everybody's groggy that's waking up. So You hear a guy come in, he shakes you awake, then you see lights go around your entire camp, you hear screaming, you hear trumpets, and you assume that the man is trying to assassinate you. At least that's what I would probably think. And it says that the Lord turned Midian's swords against each other. And as we read in the beginning, there were a few different people groups, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other people of the east So they're all like, oh, great, they turned on us. Oh, great, Israel's coming. Oh, great, this is... And they are confused because they're all waking up. And so they all start killing each other. And eventually they take off running. And at this point, Gideon, still using his wisdom, begins to chase. And he begins to call the rest of Israel to follow those, all those men that he sent home. He's like, all right, now we can go. The Lord's given us victory. Let's chase them down and wipe them out. Now, this is where we start to come to an interesting turn. So, 
as they're chasing, they come to these two cities in the tribe of Gad, Sakath and Peniel. And he stops at both of them and says, hey, our men are chasing the Midianites. Would you please give us some bread? Like, it's like the least he can ask for. Would you please just give us some bread? We're super tired. And the leaders of both towns say, well, I don't see the kings of Midian in your uh, possession. So how about we just play neutral and uh, we're not going to get in the middle of this until you prove to us that you're actually going to beat Midian. Because for seven years, they've been dominating us and we just want to kind of stay out of it. And so Gideon begins to act in his own accord still. But this is where the ark starts to go down. And he goes, okay, just remember that. When we come back, he tells the men of Sakath, he goes, okay, uh, when we come back, we're going to um, punish you with thorns and briars. Like, you know those like sticky things that are horrible when you walk through bushes? He's like, we're just going to torture you with those. And then... Peniel or Peniel is known for having a huge tower. He's like, oh, and when we come back there, we're going to knock your tower down. <laughs> I, there, there's no record of God telling him to do that. And this is how Gideon says it. He t- and, and then they go, they win the battle. And as soon as the battle's won, this is Gideon's reaction. Verses 16 and 17. Gideon took the elders of the town and taught them a lesson, punishing them with thorns and briars from the wilderness. He also tore down the tire of Peniel and killed all the men in the town. These were other Jewish men. These were other Israelite people. The people that God said, hey, I want you to rescue them from Midian. Now, Gideon's going, you know what? They didn't help me how I told them to help me. Now, I'm going to kill them and punish them. He's, uh, he's taking a lot of liberties with his new position as the leader of Israel for this moment. Gideon was called to rescue them despite their unbelief, not punish them for their doubts. Does that sound familiar to anybody else in this story that maybe had some doubts and then we know how God reacted to those doubts? Often the areas where God shows us the most patience and the most grace and the most help are the areas that we refuse to give anyone else any patience, any help, any leeway. Because the things that we suck at the most are the things that we expect the best out of other people. Those are the things that we go, you know what, there's, there's no wiggle room on this one because you're screwing up. What if God would have done that to Gideon? The very first thing he did is like, how am I supposed to believe God's even real, basically? And the angel's like, you know what? Let's work through that. And all these men did are like, hey, man, like these people have been killing us for a while. We don't want to give you bread. And he's like, all right, I'll come back and kill you then. (laughs) That's his reaction. So at this point, we begin to see him falling away from what God created him to do and asked him to do, which was save Israel. And he begins to bring punishment on Israel That was never ordained by God. And then here we see a little bit of hope. We we see the Gideon that God created him to be right here in verses 22 and 23. The battle's over. They've defeated Midian. They've killed their kings. Israelites said to Gideon, be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. 
So you're going to ask the guy that's like, let's break clay jars and scream at him. You're going to be like, you're our hero, save us. No, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I would never ask that guy to protect me. I'd be like, you got lucky, and I appreciate it, but nah. We'll ask somebody else to do that. Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. This is like a moment where like, good, the, the good Gideon's back. He, he just got intense with war, right? He, he got, he's like, I'm just killing everybody. He's, he's getting into it. He's his first time ever like fighting people. And he just, he got real excited. And now he's back. He's going, I'm not ruling over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's not my job. My job was to lead this army, to be obedient, to rescue you from the Midianites. And God is still your king. Now, Things seem like they're, they're going to be good now. Gideon's just going to be a judge. He's just going to be there, you know, doing whatever judges did. Making sure Midian doesn't come back. Border Patrol just had, like, Zippo lighters and canteens. Like, you got him. Gideon's mistake. This is where we're coming to the end of the arc. And this is all in one verse, so I have to split this verse into two parts. Because the first half of the verse tells us how the second half of the verse happens. And I'm going to kind of explain why this happened. Because it doesn't make sense. Hmm. Yeah, there we go. I probably didn't even do that. That was probably AJ. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold... And put it in Ophrah, his hometown. So he's right after, this, I didn't even put this verse up there. Right after he says, I'm not going to be a ruler. He goes, but if everybody would give me some gold earrings, that would suffice. So he just wanted bling. I get it. So he makes an ephod. So the ephod was a garment that the high priest wore. And it had these stones, and this is a very rough Cliff Notes version of describing the ephod. So it had these stones in it that were used to help discern the will of God. And it was only to be worn by the high priest. Now, this is a little backstory, but Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh. The tribe of Ephraim is where the city of Shiloh was, which at that point is where the tabernacle was. So God's presence was in Shiloh. That's where the ephod was. That's where the high priest was supposed to be doing his thing. But Ephraim and Manasseh, were, they were brothers back in the day, and so now they're kind of like rival tribes. We didn't even get into it, but at the beginning of chapter 8, Ephraim comes to Gideon, and they're like, why do you hate us? You know, like they play this whole victim card. It's this whole thing. And Gideon fixes it. But Gideon's afraid of Ephraim because there's this disagreement between his people and those people, even though they're all supposed to be on the same team. So he goes, you know what, I'm supposed to be the leader for God's people. I'm not the ruler, but I am the leader. So I need to have my own priestly garment so that I can discern what God wants. Now, at any point in the story, had God asked him to use an ephod or some stones to discern his will? Only Pastor Jacob knows. The answer is no. Good job. That's why he's in charge here. He knows the answers. No! He, God was speaking to him. He was leading him step by step, going, this is how we're doing this. And then in the law, he had said, that's 
what I want is I want the high priest to do that. At no point did he tell Gideon he was the new high priest. At no point did he say, you are now a prophet, which means you are to speak for me. He never said that. He said, you're a judge. You're going to go rescue him. You're a hero. That's it. And Gideon begins to overstep his boundaries. And so he puts this priestly garment only for the high priest, which he is not because he is not a Levite. And there's so many issues with his logic here, which is not logic at all. And then this is the second half of the verse. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it. And it became a trap for Gideon and his family. And there it is. First half of the verse, he creates something. He, he, he oversteps what God asked him to do. And the next sentence is he leads Israel right back to what caused this entire problem. So it became a trap for him and his family too. They begin to worship it like an idol. And a lot of times that can happen to us too because we go, we have these experiences with God. We do all these great things that God uses us to do. And then, instead of continuing that relationship with God, instead of continually going back to him and asking him, what's the next step? What's the next thing you want from me? We begin to only look to what he did and never look to what he wants to do next. And we start to worship what God's done in the past, how he's used us in the past. When I was younger and I did all these great things for God, when I was younger and I volunteered more at church, when I was younger and I didn't have all this stuff going on and I did all these things, I'm just going to... I'm going to really praise God for what he used to do, and then I'm going to do what I think is best. I'm going to operate in my own wisdom like Gideon, and I'm just going to do what I think he wants me to do based on what he did in the past and my interpretation of what he wants me to do next instead of going to him and asking him what to do. And it became a trap for Gideon and his whole family. Here's the ark. This took me 45 minutes. Yep. There was no keynote class uh, when I got my credentials to be a pastor, so this is what we came up with. Now, I put the references here because it's just too much wording to put everything, but we see, watch this, this has a laser pointer, you didn't know that. Oh, yeah. So, we see here, this is where Gideon starts. He's at the end, he goes, I need to make a sacrifice. I don't even believe that this is really God speaking to me. So that's, that's kind of his low point at the beginning. And then we get up, he goes, okay, cool, I'm going to go destroy the thing, you know, doing that. I'm going to obey God, but I'm going to do it like a coward. And then right here in 36 to 40 is when he calls the army. Now we see that there's a difference. 34 comes after 36, because 34 he calls the army. 36 to 40 is when he asks for the fleece. So he's getting up here, uh, one step back. And I'm hoping we can relate to this because this is what our lives look like. It's not every step, every single decision we make is the next great decision and we never have any setbacks. We never doubt God again. We never question what he's asked us to do because Gideon did. So he took one step back and then he gets two steps forward. Chapter seven, this is where he begins to lead. I agree. That's a good, that's a good point. This is where God starts to take away his army, take away his army again. But this is where we hear the dream in verse 14. Verse 15, he's like, all right, we're going to dominate. Verse 16 to 25, I have it circled here. It's at the apex 
of kind of him fulfilling his calling, right? And I say it's obedience and wisdom together. As we see this side is him learning to hear and obey God's voice. As he goes up the ark, he's learning to hear from God. He's learning to obey. He's taking these steps of faith. There are some setbacks, but overall the trajectory is up. So now we get here and we get some of the best decisions he made. Is right here when he goes to war. He operates both in what God asked him to do, beat the Midianites, but also in his own wisdom that God gave him to fulfill his purpose. So then, we'll come back to this. Eight, seven, and nine, he goes, all right, we're going to pursue. Then he comes to the cities and he says, hey, we're going to punish you. Which is not exactly what God asked him to do here in 14 to 17. That's when he punishes the men for their unbelief, which was the very, very thing that he had issue with. 27a creates the ephod. But before that, we see that other glimpse, remember? He goes, I'm not going to be your ruler. So there we get to jump him right up into here again. He knows exactly what God created him to do. He says, I'm not your ruler. I've done what God asked me to do. But within four verses, from 23 to 27, he goes, but give me all your gold earrings. Oh, man, how did that happen? He goes, give me all your gold earrings. I'm going to make them into this thing so that I don't have to deal with any issues. And we're back at the bottom, and it ends. It doesn't end good. It ends with Israel prostituting themselves to idols again. Gideon and his family prostituting themselves to idols. And then after he dies, it says, as soon as Gideon died, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight again. And so we look at this ark and we see it goes up. He's learning to obey. And here at the very top is where obedience and wisdom, his calling, come together. And we see God kind of walked with him. This whole left side of the ark, God is active in reaching out and going, this is what's next. This is what ne- what's next. Go and hear this dream. And then when Gideon's operating at the top of his game, God becomes a little less active. He didn't leave Gideon, obviously, because he was still successful. He was still with him. But he wasn't holding his hand through all of it. He goes, okay. Now you know what it means to operate in obedience to me and in the wisdom that I've given you. So what are you going to do next? And we see him beginning to rely on his own wisdom. He doesn't ask God what to do. As soon as God stops actively telling him what to do, Gideon stops asking what to do. And this is kind of where, we, where I want us to evaluate ourselves is as we look at this arc, as we look at the decisions Gideon made, as we look at how his life shaped out, at the end of the day, he's still known for what happened there at the top, for being obedient, for fulfilling his calling. But how do we avoid the pitfalls? And I think it has to do with seeking God. It has to do with, at some point, God wants to see 
how much effort you're going to put in to find out what's next. He wants you to realize your potential. He wants you to realize your calling, what you've been created to do, just like he did with Gideon. And then he wants to see what you're going to do with it. He wants to, he doesn't want you to be a robot that goes, okay, tomorrow, wake up, do this. Okay, tomorrow, do this. He's going to walk with you through it. And he's there. As soon as you reach out to him, he's there. But Gideon never reached out again. He fell into a trap of arrogance, of self-reliance, of, of believing that he was a little bit wiser than he thought he was because of what God had done in the past, and now he can take on this life by himself. And so we're going to take communion to close service today as we sing this last song. And I think it's an appropriate response because... Communion is about taking time to recognize and remember what Christ did for us. That he made it possible to come to God. To have a relationship with him. To speak with him. To hear from him. To do all these things that happened just in like special moments in the Old Testament through this ancient cliff notes. Jesus came and lived life and died on the cross and rose again so that we could have that every single day. It didn't have to be this special thing that only happened to special people. Through the confession of what Christ has done on the cross and his forgiveness and his redemption is how we can make sure that we're still focused on seeking God. If we're constantly looking to what Jesus did and knowing that without him, we'd never be able to reach that top. We'd never get to that point where we're doing what God created us to do without Jesus. And that's the only place, right there at the top is the only place that we feel fulfilled, that we feel like our life has meaning, that we feel like our life has purpose. And that doesn't mean you're spending 40 hours a week at church and in soup kitchens. It means that you're doing what God created you to do at your job every day. It means you're doing what God created you to do with your family every night. It means that you're operating in relationship with God to become all that he's asked you to be, all that he's created you to be so that you can have that fulfillment and that contentness in your life. So as we take communion, we're just gonna realign ourselves with God again. That's what communion is about. It's kind of remembering the covenant that he made. Jesus said, take this bread. It represents my body. It was broken for you. Remember this. Remember me when you do this. Take the juice. Take the wine. It represents my blood. Remember that my blood was shed for you. That's what we're doing. We're going, Jesus, I'm going to end up just like Gideon if I don't constantly remind myself that I need you every step of the way.